Welcome to Quaker Faith and Podcast, where we will explore traditional Quaker beliefs and the variety of Quaker beliefs found today. Hi, welcome back to Quaker Faith and Podcast with your hosts, Mackenzie and Micah. And uh, since we were just chatting about it, we've decided we're going to do an episode on the taboo on photography and recording that exists around waiting worship. Yeah, it's interesting. For me, uh, growing up, I when I was a little kid, um, I, I think I've been over my background before in previous episodes, but just as a reminder, I grew up as a small child, as the, the son of two Quaker pastors, and uh, this was an even, uh, sort of what I would call like a, a, more, a more traditionalist uh, evangelical Quaker church. And by traditionalist, I mean for Quaker to be traditionalist is to hold to more of the old form, just not necessarily any other kind of conservatism. Um, but our church held to some of the old forms, including, uh, in, in, in our service, we would have a time of waiting worship for like, it would, depending on the day, it would be you know, maybe five to 10 minutes. And, um, so as a, as a young child, I experienced waiting worship, um, on a regular basis. And I just sort of picked up, you know, as, as Quakers would say through osmosis, uh, certain, certain things about it. And one of the things I picked up about waiting worship, um, was that uh, it was taboo to uh, do sort of active recording activities. In particular, it was taboo to take pictures, to pull out out, uh, a a camera and start taking pictures of the service, or or, or even uh, even worse, taking pictures of someone who was speaking in the meeting for worship. Whereas uh, I got told this one explicitly because... Um, I'd been going to meeting for like six months or something when I went to a wedding, which actually Michael was at that wedding. And, um, it was made explicit there. You do not take photos during the wedding. Um, and the reason given was like, the other reason that I've understood is that, um, you can't get a picture of the, the spirit being there. And so it's not like, you're not really going to capture the experience of what's going on. So just sort of don't try but there's also like that that's really disruptive if somebody's like, especially with the, there's, there's a flash on the camera. Mm. Yeah, and uh, when when my wife and I got married, uh, we got married in a traditional Quaker wedding. So the whole thing, uh, the whole wedding ceremony, you might say, was uh, a a an hour long meeting for worship that was based in silence. And uh, you know, we stood up when when we were ready, we stood up out of the silence and said our promises to one another, um, and. Uh, eventually signed our wedding certificate in the meeting for worship. Other people spoke and gave vocal ministry in the meeting for worship. And so it was, I think, I think, I think folks who weren't familiar with Quaker, with Quaker norms probably found it weird that there was no photography during the service. There was no picture of us actually like, you know, standing at the altar or something like that. That doesn't exist. Was there an altar? There was not an altar. Uh, The closest thing to an altar was there was a facing bench. Okay. Um, and, but so there's no, there's no photography. There's, there are obviously photos of us, uh, afterwards, but there's no photography of the actual, uh, wedding service. Um, and, uh, I think this is really interesting because of course, I mean, obviously this is not, this is not an an ancient Quaker tradition because cameras did oh, not really about 150 years old. Right. And, and, and the kind of cameras that you would bring into a service that, like, you know, you could take live action shots are even more recent than that. Right. Um, you know, older cameras, you would literally have to pose for, for you know, long periods of time for them to expose. So um, this is this is a new this is a new issue. 
Um, and one of the reasons I think this issue is really, really interesting is because uh, Quakers traditionally have never had any kind of issues with recording the content of uh, Quaker meetings for worship. Um, it was very uh, frequent to, to, to for stenographers to come in and be, be t- taking taking essentially uh, live action notes of what people were saying uh, in the meeting for worship. And we have uh, we have many uh, sermons uh, that have been recorded from the early periods of Quakerism through uh, the 1800s, uh, and we have them because people were sitting there writing them down as they were happening. So I'm not sure if it was actually non-controversial because I've, I so our friend Chip um, has a very old book from 1830 with um, a whole bunch of sermons from there's one from Elias Hicks and there's some from um, Stephen Crisp from like the 1600s um, and some other people watching crosses in there, but um, when he showed me that book, he said that the stenographers were, of course, not friends themselves. Which I found interesting. Like, that he was saying that basically somebody had had come in at a public meeting and um, done the, the stenography without permission. And actually, I think from... I think from what I've read of Elias Hicks, that his sermons... That, that at least the publication of his sermons was without permission. That's interesting. I, I wonder, I mean, I, I know that Chip, uh, Chip, if you're listening, much respect. I know that <laughs> Chip knows his stuff. Um, that being said, uh, we have we have sermons from early. We yeah, have sermons from real early. Like I said, Stephen Crisp is the 1600s. Yeah. And so I don't know if that was... And, and I mean, um, again, like I actually, you know, if I wanted to do this podcast right, I should actually do some research. I'm basically going off of what I remember uh, from from previous research, uh, but I, I could easily be wrong on this. But but it was my impression that uh, in the early Quaker movement, like they were constantly passing around stuff that they had preached, in addition to their pamphlets, and like there was a very rich like literary culture that included like record like recorded for that time and place recorded sermons. Mm-hmm. So um, all that is to say, I, there there may be there may be some some. Some some ambiguity there, but it, yeah, maybe, maybe it was sort of that it was fine, and then and then like I mean, if you're talking about Elias Hicks mm-hmm. having his sermons recorded, you're talking about That's way later. Well, and you're talking about the time when there's the schism and all the fighting, right? And so then you're looking at like a lot of the problems with these sermons being written down and passed around, and you know who knows if even if they, like if somebody's unscrupulous that they alter stuff mm-hmm. like or. Or at least that there could be accusations of that. That like there could be so much sure. with if you have if you're publishing the sermons of people who are on two sides of this big argument, and like then them like going, well, you said right. on such and so date, and right. and how that could inflame things. Right. Yeah, to be honest, if I if I had been Elias Six or anybody uh, in any major figure in one of those controversial periods, I would definitely want there to be a trustworthy transcript of what I said. Because there must have been so much gossip. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, plenty of people were saying Elias Six like didn't you know dem- deny the divinity of Jesus and all kind of stuff. And Elias Six, as far as I know, never said stuff like that. Right. Uh, he he may have had he may have had a fairly um, he may have had a particular interpretation of, of, of many of things. How or, or what divinity is right? But but like but but people were accusing Elias Six frequently of denying the divinity of Jesus. And as far as I know, that was never his position. So. 
like if I were Elias Hicks or if I were, you know, Gurney or if I were another one of these controversial figures, I would definitely want those transcripts out there and accurate. I would want my friends giving, to, to an, be giving, the ones doing giving the an accurate transcript of what I was saying so that I wasn't misrepresented. Mm-hmm. Um, but all, all that being said, uh, it, it seems like, you know, even, even today, I don't, I mean, I think it depends on time and place. So, you know, uh, the, the taboo can be, can be more extreme or less extreme depending on where you're at. Um, I think maybe in some places they wouldn't want you to like make an audio recording, but in my experience, and I guess in my own personal opinion, um, an audio recording. So, so first of all, I know I've, I, I have seen, uh, audio recordings be extensively used, uh, particularly in special meetings for worship. In other words, like, uh, at, 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 at like Quaker meetings. At, well, no, no, not at business meetings, but like at Quaker gatherings or yearly meetings or things like that, where there's, where there's going to be uh, a special meeting for worship with, with, a, with, a, with a speaker slash preacher that you know is going to preach during that meeting for worship. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're frequently recorded. Um, well, and I know um, just recently um, the Young Quaker podcast out of Britain, which mm-hmm. um, the Young Quaker was like the, the newsletter for their young adults group. Young friend? No, it's called Young Quaker. Okay. Um, that, that was their newsletter for their young adults group. Um, which, I mean, the Young Adults group is called Young Friends, but they recently moved into having a monthly podcast and, um, what, one recent one they did was they had an audio recording of Meeting for Worship. Now, uh, we've said in a previous episode that when you have smaller groups, you tend not, you tend to have less vocal ministry than in larger groups. Mm -hmm. And this was a small group, so it's actually a full hour of quote unquote silence, but it's actually showing that an hour of silence isn't actually completely silent. Sure. Like, you know, there's the people shuffling and breathing and, and all those sorts of noises. And, um, they recorded that. And, um, now they're like talking, um, Jessica Hubbard Bailey from that podcast is talking to like BBC and stuff about it because it's the first time that there has, that, that has been like broadcast out as a public thing as far as they know, of, of, of programming worship. Oops, just double-checked. It's actually a half hour, not an entire hour. That's interesting. Uh, that may be true. I know that I, I know that I, uh, on, on, on my, on my iPod, which I still have one of those, uh, although <laughs> I rarely use it because I mostly listen to streaming music, but on my iPod, on my computer, I actually have a number of, uh, of meetings for worship, uh, and these are usually ones, I mean, in fact, I think they're exclusively ones where, um, we we knew going in to this meeting for worship that that someone was going to speak at length, mm-hmm. um, and and to be fair, that was every meeting for worship prior to say nineteen hundred for sure. We all went into meetings for worship knowing, oh yes, the, these this person or these people are probably going to give us extended sermons. Um, so uh, I think something unique unique about uh, modern Quakerism, particularly in, particularly in the liberal branch, but also in the conservative branch. Um, is that we genuinely go in not knowing if anyone's going to speak at all. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, previously we really did know. I mean, like, maybe sometimes they wouldn't. There are stories of Quaker ministers who, like, you know, they would not speak because God didn't give them words because they knew, you know, they could sense that the people were there for entertainment, so they weren't going to give them, you know, what they wanted, that kind of thing. But in general, like, you came and knew that certain people were going to speak, like, almost certainly. Well, or you, because... And we've talked before about um, 
like reporting ministers and, and stuff and, and what that has traditionally meant. You know, you knew that, especially when you have like bigger, a lot of meetings used to be a lot bigger too. Um, you knew that there would, were, you know, a dozen people there who tended to have messages mm-hmm. and like that was their gift. And so what, between a dozen of them, somebody's probably going to say something. But I, I guess, I guess uh, in particular with uh, when ministers traveled, mm-hmm. it was generally expected. Like today, like, you know, I've, I've, I've traveled extensively in the ministry and there's really no expectation necessarily that, that I'm going to speak during the meeting for worship. I may. I often might. But there's no expectation that, oh, yes, Mike is here as a traveling minister. Therefore, he's going to give us a, you know, a 30-minute sermon today, right? Whereas in the old days, people would be very surprised. It was of note if they were silent, right? Um, like a guest preacher. Exactly. Um, and so I guess, I guess I think the reason we're off on this tangent about like extended speaking and worship and expectations about that is just that um, I, I think that, I think that the, the, the recordings that, that I've listened to and have listened to repeatedly, because some of them were very, very good, um, all came at times when we knew someone was going to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, uh, I don't think we – like, a normal, a normal Quaker meeting for worship, you know, on a Sunday morning, I don't know if they're ever recorded. Um, but these special ones where we know that we've got like, essentially a guest, a guest preacher um, – are fairly frequently recorded. I know, you know, North Carolina yearly meeting conservative, uh, has recorded, has, you know, one of the sermons I've listened to is one by Carl Magruder, um, from, I forget from, from sometime in the two thousands. Uh, and it's a very good, it's a very good sermon. And he, he spoke it extemporaneously out of silence and, uh, but they recorded it cause they knew he was going to talk. Um, I think of, you know, I list, I've listened, you know, repeatedly dozens of times to sermons from the world gathering of young friends, which was an event that really changed my life. Um, and some of those sermons were very, uh, a few of those sermons were like extremely impactful on my, on my trajectory. Um, I've listened to them over and over again and I'm very grateful they were recorded because there was so much there that as I've listened to these sermons in over the years, like I, I find new things in them. So I actually, uh, I, I think, I think that, re- that, that recording, whether it's through transcription or whether it's through audio recording, sort of what I would call passive recording, mm-hmm. um, I think is very much both for what it's worth, both within the tradition and valuable, because there's a lot of, uh, especially especially sort of in these in these invited speaker situations, there's there's often very very valuable content that's worth being re re experienced. I think one reason, I think probably one very significant reason why um, audio recording is not like like remains taboo in in regular meetings is because of the um, chilling speech effect. Like there are plenty of people who, when they stand to speak in meeting, they are clearly very nervous because they are speaking in front of a mm-hmm. bunch of people, and this is kind of nerve wracking. And so if you add in, oh, and also we're recording everything you say, and we're gonna stick this on the internet later. Well, then, no, no, not standing. <clears throat> nope, nope, cannot talk. To, to be honest, I think that recording your, you know, recording your average local Quaker meeting Sunday morning meeting for worship every Sunday and putting out would be extremely boring. Uh, I, I think, I think that um, it, it is significant. It is significant that uh, when stenographers regularly went to Quaker meetings for worship, it was because there was preaching and there was 
preaching by people who are very good preachers, and they knew there was going to be quality and interesting content. Um, and I think it's not it's not insignificant that today when we do audio record, it's because I mean it's because Carl McGrew is speaking, Colin Saxon speaking, Ute Casper is speaking, whoever it is. Like mm-hmm. we know these are like significant people. They're gonna they're gonna give us something they prepared and it's significant and of weight. Um, prepared. So, oh yeah, and I mean like I think of I think of Carl McGrew Carl McGrew's talk. I mean he, you know Carl, if you're listening, come on and contradict me on this. But your sermon at North Carolina, you're being conservative. I heard it to be very prepared. Now it was extemporaneous, but you prayed about it. You thought about it. You put a lot of energy into crafting it in your mind and in your heart before the day. So uh, this was a prepared sermon. It just happened to be extemporaneous, which is a powerful style that I think Quakers do very well. Like, yeah, sometimes you hear somebody say, you know, there's, you know, I've had this concern that's laid on me for, you know, days or weeks or months. Mm -hmm. and, And then they talk about, you know, the thing that has been weighing down on them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, it's not a new concern that arrived three minutes ago. Um. And I think, uh, I, I feel like, I feel like maybe we're getting really off course here, but this is very interesting. I think that uh, a real weakness in Quakerism, it's a weakness that comes from our strength. It's a shadow. Um, a real weakness in Quakerism is that we, um, we are so interested in this sort of immediate inspiration, like in the moment inspiration. Like I just got this from God that, our, that our messages uh, in the normal meeting for worship, right? That, that you would, why would you record it? Because it's so boring, like to listen to later. Mm-hmm. Um, our messages end up being like one to three minutes long because we really did just get it. And in other words, like in our regular meetings for worship, we, we almost end up like habitually experiencing seeds rather than trees. And I think seeds are good, but it might be good to experience some trees from time to time, too. And trees take time to grow. I think that involves a fundamental misunderstanding of the word immediate. Because people, because, okay, language changes, right? So um, 500 years ago, if someone looked at something and said, oh, that's so artificial. What they would have meant is that is so artistic. That There's a lot of skill. It's really artful. And now it means that is so fake. Uh-huh. Um. And similarly, immediate has changed meaning. So now we think of immediate as meaning like right now. And so, so the immediate promptings of the spirit mean it has just happened a moment ago. But 300 years ago, when, you know, George Fox and Edward Burrow and etc. were writing about the immediate promptings of the spirit, they were meaning without intermediary. So it's direct. Anytime you see one of the early friends say immediate, substitute in the word direct, and you'll get what they actually mean. Yeah, um, I, I, I think I think there's uh, so. I think I I think you're right. That the word has changed. Um, I I think that without intermediary is not quite the right sense because of course um, early friends and friends until very recently. Uh, all, all profess that the intermediary is Jesus, but but no human intermediary. Yeah, because because they were they were talking about immediate as in without having a priest mediating for you. Yes, yes, um, I think that's right. Um, but so uh, one other one other thing uh, that I that I sort of wanted to uh, before the reason we decided to record this, we're sort of going off script. And doing a podcast on something we find interesting, rather than it being in the book necessarily. So we're we're, we're following the the guidance of our own inner, inner lights, whatever that means. Um, we uh, 
I was interested by the by the fact by by the reason that the, the sort of passive audio recording or passive stenography uh, seems like in general it's it's been okay. They're, that that really like some communities might might extend the taboo to passive recording, but in general we tend to think it's okay. Um, yet for someone like for example like beholding like to be upholding a camera or a video recording device would not be acceptable in almost any circumstance. Um, what's the difference there? And uh, I think, at least for me, uh, and maybe maybe for others, maybe this is the reason, but for me, I, I think the reason that this kind of recording, like sort of active recording uh, or, or photography is not generally acceptable um, is that with the passive recording, uh, you have, you have you are sort of... Um, you're sort of letting it run, like whatever, whatever, whatever happens, uh, you know, the the device, or in, in the case of stenography, the stenographer uh, is sort of sitting quietly taking notes. Oh, we should probably note that back when stenographers were doing this, stenography meant shorthand. It did not mean the little clacky keyboards you see in the courtroom. Right. So, so this this was sort of uh, this was something that, especially especially today in the day of audio recording. This is something like, you know, we turn on the recorder at the beginning of the meeting, and after that, no one thinks about it whatsoever for the rest of the time. It's just there. Um, and especially in audio, audio recording, um, none of us is put in the position of being the observer. The observer, the observer is uh, an inanimate object uh, that we later reference, right? Um, but in the case of, of actually, like, actively taking photographs or... or um, uh, you know, active video recording or something like that, you have an operator and you have someone who in effect is, is in the space making decisions about the moments they want to capture um, and about, you know, angles and all sorts of things. And, and, and in the case of photographers in particular, like moving around the space and, and, and lining shots up. And not only is this sort of disruptive in a superficial way of like, oh, I, I wish that photographer weren't moving around because they're distracting me. That may be a part of it, but I don't think that's why there's a taboo. Um, I think the taboo comes from the fact that in meeting for worship, I think one we're going for a number of things in meeting for worship, and I think it's a mistake to, to say meeting for worship is about just one thing. But I think one of the things that we're going for in meeting for worship is a, a unitive experience. Um, and I think in the most powerful meetings for worship, there is, uh, there is an experience of oneness and unity uh, and a, a, a diminishing or a weakening of uh, individual consciousness into a group consciousness. And it's difficult for that to happen uh, if one or more people in the group is actively taking the role of a third-party observer. There's, there's no room for sort, of, uh, for sort of a detached observer in the meeting for worship. Uh, it, 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 it diminishes what's happening in the meeting for worship if someone is 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 watching as a third party, as opposed to participating. As opposed to participating. And I've wondered if this is why um, you don't see a lot of meetings that have a sign language interpreter, um, hmm. because well, so like okay, so for a while, one of my friends was attending Friends Meeting in Washington, and she's deaf, and from her, I learned some rudimentary. Um, signs. I mean, I basically, I sign in English word order, so it's kind of a pigeon. Um, it's pigeon sign English. But I would interpret for her during meeting, and that 
was fine. I was participating in meetings for worship as well, but I wonder if meetings are maybe hesitant to hire a sign language interpreter because that person would then not be participating in the worship, just doing the the translation. I mean, I don't. I, not not I don't, to not to be too cynical, but I I also just wonder if like money. we don't want to pay for it. Um, what I have seen at Pittsburgh Friends meeting um, last time I visited is that they now have one corner of the room where they have a really big screen for a computer, and there's somebody with a keyboard and they open up. Um, open up a text editor and said it's a really large font mm-hmm. and somebody's sitting there and types up the messages as they're happening. Yeah. And anybody who's on that side of the room can read the messages. I saw that, uh, I think at the 2008 friends United meeting, uh, triennial gathering, mm-hmm. uh, they, they had something like that. Yeah. It's the, the name for it, like for inaccessibility is <clears throat> cart for, I think it's computer aided real time captioning. This is actually, this is actually a real question. Um, one particular case I'm thinking of, I think I think le- less than the than the real time capturing of English, like you just mentioned. I think a real question is interpretation, and you mentioned sign language. But I've also at the World Gathering of Young Friends in particular, and I think it happened a lot at FWCC gatherings. Mm-hmm. You have simultaneous, NFUM. you have sim- NFUM, you have simultaneous interpretation, um, and this raises a real question uh, because at the World Gathering of Young Friends, I know our speakers were expected to submit their manuscripts and then not go off them because they needed to be interpreted. And it was the too, too difficult, uh, too difficult to, to do like simultaneous interpretation is extremely challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, I, I, I see why they would say we need these manuscripts in advance so that we generally know what you're saying so that we can, you know, prepare and, and, and generally be able to translate on the fly without, you know, insane levels of competence. Which, like, I mean, you know, there's a reason, like, it is a profession to, right. to, to do simultaneous interpretation for, for things that need to be appropriately translated, right? You don't need a gist. You need to actually know what's being said. Right. Um, and so... And, and I know my, my knowledge of sign language is not great, that mm-hmm. um, when I was interpreting for my friend, that there would be points where I would just have to spell out a word for yeah. her because I couldn't. But, I mean, when you're going between English and Spanish or French mm-hmm. or Swahili you're not going to be able to right. to spelling is not going to cut it. <laughs> and so I remember it was significant because most of the speakers did have prepared, did have prepared sermons. Um, and I think it was all fine because they generally stuck to the script, uh, which is cool uh, because when I, when I preach my sermons at the Washington state church, of the brethren here in DC, uh, I generally stick, stick the script. I may go off on a tangent for a little bit. I may say some things I didn't expect on saying, but if you had the train, if you had the, if you had the text, you could generally follow what I was saying. Um, so it wasn't a problem in general, but there was at least one preacher. I remember Boris Saunders from Philadelphia, who she apologized to the interpreters when she started. She says, I don't have a text and I'm not preaching from a text. And on the one hand, you know, I, her, her sermon was in her, her, particularly her first sermon was incredibly impactful to me. It was maybe the most impactful sermon I've, I've ever heard in terms of developing me as a minister. Uh, so on the one hand, like she was faithful. On the other hand, maybe she was arrogant. Because the Spanish speakers probably couldn't follow what she was saying, because she was speaking extemporaneously. She was speaking in a very, a very, uh, a very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Very energetic manner. Uh, and I, and I bet you. Uh, oh, so I, possibly too fast for the interpreters to keep up with. Well, yes. And so, like on the one hand, I was deeply moved by particularly her first sermon. Um, 
and I needed it. On the other hand, you couldn't, tr you probably couldn't translate that thing in a way that the Spanish speakers needed. Um, so, like, yeah, and and that's another thing too. Like, I just think like translation, translation's really, really difficult. Yeah, translation's really, really difficult, and like. This is something that Muslims think about all the time. Like, it, are you really getting the message if someone translates it to you, or do you need to hear it in, in, in the original that God gave it in? Right. Mm -hmm. So anyway, like I think translation too is is sort of a, a fraught, a fraught, uh, a fraught thing for friends because because we really do believe that uh, in ideal circumstances the messages we're hearing are actually like uh, they're, they're actually like from God. Like God is actually speaking these words to us. So like. How do you translate that? Mm -hmm. You know, actually, so back when we started this podcast, somebody asked if there could be a Spanish translation of podcasts, and I was like, um, neither of us, we're not fluent enough for that, so, but well, actually, I'm going to think about it now that we're doing the transcripts, I, I, well, then I, we can... I am fluent enough to translate it, I don't have time and energy. Okay. Uh, um, I mean, yeah, but but no, if we're doing transcripts, I would, I would love for us to... to if if, if 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 our viewers are donating enough to cover the costs, I, I would love. I would. I think that'd be a great thing to have uh, versions of this available in Spanish. I'd also. Uh, I'd also be interested uh, if if any of our listeners is a Spanish speaker and would be interested in coming on. We could do. We could do one of our podcasts Spanish language. I could with that person. So just putting that out there, like, it's not impossible. We mm -hmm. could do that once for sure. Uh, but yeah, I don't know where our donations are at. Uh, to, you know, to, go uh, in, to go into NPR mode here, right? Our, 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 our spring campaign. <laughs> I don't know where our <laughs> I don't know where our donations are at. But if they, if they are at the level where we could afford something like that, I think that could be cool. Uh, so currently, our Patreon is bringing in thirty eight dollars per episode, uh -huh. um, which is a few dollars more than how much it costs to transcribe one episode. Which so far has meant that. Um, I think one or maybe two of the past episodes have also gotten transcribed mm -hmm. um, because, you know, we get to where it's like, okay, so after three months we have enough money to do one old one. All right, there we go. Okay. Um, there's a little goal on Patreon of hitting it's... 60 so that we can do one old one and the current one each time. So, so but... basically I think there are really two possibilities here. The first is that one or more people are going to come out of the woodwork and start supporting this podcast significantly on Patreon. There's one person who is really support. There's there's one person who's giving twenty five dollars per episode. So wow. thank you that person. Thank, thank you so much to that person. Um, but so I think there are really two possibilities here. One is that one or more people are going to come out of the woodwork to be significant supporters um, through Patreon, and then we could afford to to hire a, a translator to to take the transcription that we have and translate that into Spanish. Right? We could do that. The other possibility is there's someone listening or a friend of someone listening who is capable and willing to do that translation and that would be amazing so if you are that person or you know that person please get in touch because we would love to have our transcriptions in spanish um but Mackenzie and i do not have the resources to do that ourselves i certainly don't have the skills <laughs> you can find us on the web at quakerpodcast.org as quaker podcast on twitter facebook or patreon and on itunes